Hello, and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, a podcast from Annual Reviews where insightful research begins. I'm your host, Mia Lobel. Today, we'll speak with Dr. John Hagen, founding editor of the Annual Review of Law and Social Science. Hagen is one of the world's leading criminologists and an expert on prosecuting war crimes. He's written extensively about the genocide in Darfur, youth and social justice, and the war crime tribunal in The Hague. Hagen taught law and sociology at the University of Toronto for more than 25 years before moving to Northwestern University in 1999. He is also Senior Research Fellow at the American Bar Foundation in Chicago. Dr. Hagen, thank you so much for joining me. Hello. Now, in 1969, you went to Canada to avoid fighting in the Vietnam War. How did that decision influence your later career and research? Uh, I think it uh, gave me a strong interest in trying to understand uh, how major events in people's lives uh, change uh, how their lives turn out. Uh, so I went to Canada uh, just after graduating from university and uh, lived in Canada for 25 years. Uh, and so it was obviously the largest part of my adult life. It had a big impact on me uh, in many ways. It was the best sort of thing that ever could have happened to me. It was exciting. Uh, Canada is a terrific country. and. Uh, it got me interested in thinking about uh, how a major event in your life can change uh, how things turned out. And it focused my interest in particular on how legal events uh, that occur in people's lives uh, change uh, uh, the, the sorts of things they do in their lives. Uh, so uh, making a decision to go to Canada, resisting the draft, uh, it was a big decision at the time. Uh, it led me to a different country, uh, it led me to study different sorts of problems uh, in that country, and uh, had a big impact then on thinking about uh, how, how these changes occur. Had you known at the time that you were going to pursue a career in sociology and law? Uh, I knew I was interested in sociology. I knew I was going to go to graduate school in sociology, uh, but I didn't so much have the focus on law. Uh, I didn't have the strong interest in how legal events in people's lives uh, changes uh, what what happens to them and what they do. You know, you, you can think about almost every event in your life. It kind of has a legal mark of some type. Some type. Uh, when you're born, you get a birth certificate. When you graduate from university, you get a college degree that has a certain legal meaning. Uh, if you wind up going to jail, that obviously has a big impact on your life. If you go to court in various ways, it can be a turning point. Uh, so all these sorts of things can make a difference. And um, I think the idea that I was uh, resisting the selective service uh, laws of the United States by resisting the war and going to Canada uh, led me to think about how that kind of uh, illegal event can change uh, what you do. Uh, many of the people who went to Canada during that period, about 50,000 Americans uh, of draft age, went to Canada during that period, both men and women, actually. Uh, many of those people went on to do work uh, in, in, uh, in the educational field, in the cultural fields, uh, in social services, education, and so on. So it's kind of a turning point event. How do you feel about the term draft dodger? Well, it's an interesting term because it has actually different meanings uh, in different places, I've learned. Uh, you know, when we hear about it in the United States, we tend to associate it with, uh, with maybe Bill Clinton or even uh, Dick Cheney. 
and uh, think about them as not having served in the military and, and dodged uh, the Vietnam War in particular, for example. Uh, but in Canada, being a draft dodger actually had a positive connotation. It was the idea of rebelling against that war. Uh, Canadians, by and large, were against that war and supported the idea of allowing draft resistors and also deserters from the military to come into the country. And uh, we were a group that was uh, helped and assisted in many ways. Uh, and a sort of odd quirk of history is that we were the first large group in a new uh, wave of, of immigration uh, to Canada. Many other groups uh, were then admitted to Canada and came in large numbers. Uh, we were one of the first uh, uh, unique large groups, and uh, many of us uh, continued to live there for a long time. About half of those who went uh, are still there and making contributions to Canadian society. So it was a life-changing kind of thing. You've obviously spent quite a lot of time thinking about the term draft dodger and what it means and what it means to different people. How does the public perspective come into play here? Yeah, it's an interesting uh, kind of question. Uh, the way I've, I've come to think about it over the years, and, and it is something that I actually still think about every day in my life, and I've learned that Vietnam veterans, like war resistors, all, all tend to think about it uh, repeatedly and frequently uh, over their lives. Um, the comparison that sort of has emerged in my way of thinking about it is uh, in, in relation to taxes. And uh, in the area of taxes, we talk about, on the one hand, tax avoidance, and on the other hand, tax evasion. And uh, evasion clearly has this pejorative uh, meaning, but avoidance, it's not so clear. And uh, so in many ways, it might be possible to think of oneself as having engaged in draft avoidance or war avoidance. I prefer to actually think of it as draft resistance and uh, war resistance. But uh, there's some interesting uh, uh, variety to the kinds of terms one could apply to it, and they have different meanings. Now, that brings up the question of how something becomes criminalized. That's to say, why are certain acts considered crimes in certain times and places, and in other times and places they're not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, one might ask, for example, how is it that we've done so little in responding to the war crimes that occurred at Abu Ghraib uh, in Iraq uh, during, during the Iraq War? Uh, this has something to do, it seems clear, with the fact that we're, we're the occupying power in that conflict and uh, therefore held to a, to a lower standard than would otherwise uh, have been the case. And uh, so it's often a matter of uh, power and influence that determines uh, who gets defined as criminal and who is not. Uh, it's a major sort of source of uh, inequality, and it's certainly uh, in our country uh, racial minorities and the poor who are more vulnerable to the criminal justice system uh, than the rich or the wealthy. And we see that played out today, for example, dramatically uh, when we compare uh, the people who we see in prison in such massive numbers uh, in the United States, something like 2.4 million Americans in jail in the United States, more than per capita anywhere else in the world, including the Soviet Union or South Africa, which are also quite high. Uh, when we look at those people who are in jail, it tends to be minorities and the poor, uh, and uh, we don't see the, the people on Wall Street there. And uh, so I think that's something that's uh, increasingly maybe uh, visible and, and a source of awareness to Americans as they think about our recent uh, financial problems and actually the lack of 
of using criminal law, for example, to charge fraud against uh, many of the sort of banking activities that occurred uh, in the lead up uh, to the financial collapse. What does the research show about that sort of inequality and who is being imprisoned and who is charged with crimes? Well, I think the most dramatic, you know, sort of contemporary experience in American society over the last quarter of a century or so is, was the response to uh, to drug uh, drug use, uh, and in particular the distinction between the treatment of people who are uh, convicted and imprisoned for use of uh, crack uh, versus those who uh, were involved with the use of powder cocaine. And we have a lot of good uh, survey research that shows that the uh, racial, ethnic uh, uh, differences uh, are not nearly as great as those that we see reflected in our prison populations. And in particular, the, uh, the fact that our uh, criminal sentencing guidelines federally in the United States uh, mandate a sentence uh, that's on the order of uh, 100 times greater for crack cocaine use and for powder cocaine use uh, in the sense of uh, the kinds of sentences given for the amounts of the drugs involved. Uh, that disparity obviously has played out dramatically in terms of the, uh, the extent to which minorities are imprisoned in the United States. About half of that 2.4 million Americans who are in jail in the United States are uh, racial minorities. Now, how do you take research like that and put it to practice in the real world? Well, I think we're dramatically coming to terms with it at the, at the moment. Uh, we're seeing uh, a beginning now uh, in particularly the state prisons in the United States where uh, financial constraints are being felt, felt most uh, extensively. We're beginning to see a greater realization of who's in jail and how great the numbers are and a beginning of a small reduction uh, in that level of incarceration in the United States. Uh, so in state prisons in the United States in the last year, there's about a 6% reduction in the number of people uh, serving time in jail or prison. On the other hand, we're detaining immigrants in larger uh, numbers than we ever have before. And there's about a 7% increase in, in the federal uh, prisons in the United States in uh, detention of uh, immigrants uh, for suspicion of uh, violations of in terms of their documentation or other infractions. Uh, so, you know, it's a constantly changing picture. Uh, it's important to know what the dimensions of it are so that we can encourage uh, legislators and others uh, to take action. And I think we're beginning to see uh, just, the, just the start of a turnaround in the scale of incarceration in the United States. I want to talk a little bit about the term subjective justice. What does that mean exactly, and how has that played into the work you've done? Well, uh, the research, uh, I've done a significant amount of research on perceptions of criminal injustice, and it's clearly the case that young minority males are especially likely to think our criminal justice system is extraordinarily uh, unjust, and uh, it's also a broadly held belief uh, in minority communities in the United States that our police and courts are unfair in their treatment uh, of them. I think that's one of the reasons we saw, you know, that rare episode where President Barack Obama responded so strongly to the arrest of his friend, uh, Henry Skip Gates, uh, on the front porch of his house in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, a Harvard University professor arrested on his own front porch. You remember that Barack Obama, uh, in his press conference after that, uh, said the Cambridge police 
had behaved stupidly. Well, I think that's a reflection of uh, obviously very uh, successful American sort of reflection on the injustices and disparities in the criminal justice system in the United States. And he sort of, you know, responded in a very uh, direct uh, way and sort of uh, uh, expressing his response to to what's widely understood in the African-American community as a really uh, abusive uh, uh, kind of system in terms of police responses, uh, especially to young minority males. One of the interesting things to further maybe sort of note about the United States at the moment is we have this very unique situation. We not only have our first African-American president, but we have our first African-American uh, attorney general uh, in charge of the Department of Justice. So we have an opportunity to see uh, real changes uh, from the inside and in the way the system operates. But of course, uh, the changes so far have been small, but hopefully they're the promise of what's to come. How does your work translate into action on the part of the government and the legal system? Well, as an academic, you know, my greatest opportunity to, to express uh, the results of research and so on is through publishing. So, for example, I have a book that's coming out uh, in the fall called uh, Who Are the Criminals with Princeton University Press. So, you know, I try to ask that question up front and hopefully you'll see it, you know, in Barnes & Noble or somewhere nearby, have an opportunity to look at it. Uh, but um, in general, I think that that's, as academics, you know, we have an opportunity, we have a voice, uh, we can do our research, we can point it in directions that will have an impact and then we can try to to get it some attention uh, through the press, the media, and so on. And annual reviews is, uh, is an, a, a vehicle for uh, getting much of this information out there. We're getting more and more attention uh, to work in social science that has a policy relevance uh, through these kinds of uh, volumes that are, that are read widely, I hope, uh, beyond the academic community. I want to talk a little bit about your experience with annual reviews. You were co-editor of the Annual Review of Sociology for many years uh, before launching the Annual Review of Law and Social Science. What happened uh, in the world at large that's warranted the launch of that new publication? Uh, there's a dramatic increase uh, in the last five to ten years in the extent of uh, social science research uh, being done on legal topics. And uh, this is reflected both within law schools, uh, but also much more broadly. For example, uh, in departments of legal studies, uh, criminology, justice studies, uh, criminal justice, uh, and so on. Uh, so there's a, a, a widening kind of audience for this kind of research, and there are more people doing it now than ever before. And uh, so this provides an occasion to have a kind of annual overview of the best work that's being done and the particular uh, topics and fields uh, within law and social science. Um, a particularly unique thing about this uh, initiative is that we're dealing with a very uh, interdisciplinary kind of mix. Uh, it's the overlap of social sciences, uh, political scientists, anthropologists, sociologists, uh, historian, psychologists, and so on, uh, who are doing work as well as uh, legal scholars uh, in, in law schools. And so the challenge is to bring together in a single volume uh, the kinds of work uh, that is going on 
uh, in these these different fields and uh, get the fields in effect to talk to one another and increase the amount of mutual awareness. What are some of the most exciting articles in your mind that have come out in this most recent review? Uh, the most recent review, for example, has an article uh, about the relationship between uh, crime uh, and religion uh, and uh, tries to address the question of whether uh, uh, religious uh, affiliation, attendance, involvement, and so on has uh, a positive effect uh, in terms of reducing uh, juvenile delinquency uh, and, and crime. Uh, we have uh, uh, work uh, that particularly focuses on war crimes and uh, addresses questions about uh, the enforcement of uh, international criminal law and asks questions about genocide and uh, crimes against humanity. Uh, we have uh, a chapter uh, in the current volume about the role of uh, evidence uh, and its presentation uh, in court, social science evidence, and how it's uh, used in court and its contribution to legal decisions, uh, both uh, in the lower courts and uh, in the higher courts uh, as well. Uh, you mentioned war crimes. Um, you attended war crime trials in The Hague. Uh, and have written quite a bit about that and about the genocide in Darfur. Tell us about the significance of these trials and what role they've played in your research. I uh, have been interested in uh, international criminal law from the moment I left the United States and went to Canada and now living in the United States again. It became obvious to me that uh, uh, there's lots of variation in laws across countries, and it's particularly interesting to think about how international criminal law uh, has uh, emerged and is used. Uh, and of course, uh, we think of international criminal law as having begun with Nuremberg. Uh, there were events before that as well, but Nuremberg was obviously uh, a turning point. But then there really wasn't so much uh, activity in international criminal law for 40 to 50 years after that. The United States and the Soviet Union were involved in a Cold War uh, and positioned in a relation to one another where neither was really too comfortable about the idea of international courts uh, making judgments about them and in, re in relation to the Cold War. But as that came to an end uh, uh, in, the, uh, in the late 1980s, beginning of the 1990s, uh, and as conflicts emerged in places like the former Yugoslavia, uh, became possible for international criminal law to really find its time and place. And so we have now have six or seven international uh, tribunals and courts and special courts. Uh, and now the International Criminal Court, which will be a permanent institution, uh, to, to enforce uh, international criminal law and to bring these prosecutions. So some of my early work was at the tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, and some of my work was on the trial involving uh, Slobodan uh, Milosevic and others involved in that conflict. And uh, more recently, I've been working on Darfur and uh, have published a book uh, that is focused on the kind of social science evidence that will play a role uh, if uh, the president of uh, Sudan, Omar al-Bashir, is brought to court, the kind of evidence that could be brought from a social scientific basis uh, to establish the patterns of the genocide that occurred in Darfur. And what kind of impact will that have? Uh, well, I think a, a beginning part of uh, our work on Darfur uh, uh, involved trying to estimate the scale of the mortality. Uh, the deaths occurring in the genocide, and more recently focusing on the sexual violence. Uh, 
uh, and uh, we were involved in estimates of the mortality that ranged between 200,000 and 400,000 uh, with kind of convergence more recently in the area of 300,000 deaths. Well, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people, and obviously uh, that's a way of focusing uh, public attention on the scale of what uh, has happened uh, in Darfur. Uh, we've gone on from that to try to show that uh, the attacks on villages in Darfur uh, involved a mix of not only uh, militia groups from the area but also government forces and that when the two were combined the scale of the mortality and the sexual violence uh, was increased. And we've also tried to uh, show how these actual attacks would occur with the yelling and screaming of uh, racial epithets, racial slurs that were a part of motivating uh, the attacks and uh, uh, a way of understanding how this kind of dehumanized violence uh, actually takes place. So all of that I think is a way of uh, attention, uh, drawing attention to the scale and nature and explanation of the problems of genocide and crimes against humanity and uh, we're quite hopeful that this kind of evidence will play a role uh, in trials that uh, emerge uh, related to Darfur and and uh, this kind of evidence has played a role already at the uh, Tribunal for the Former Yugoslavia and for Rwanda, where we have now a large number of convictions and, and an emerging body of case law and precedent uh, that is staking out the framework of international criminal law. It seems like it's a, a very exciting time to be studying law and sociology in light of these events, and many of our listeners are students of these fields. Uh, what do you think they need to know about what is going on in the field right now? What should they be thinking about and focusing on? Uh, they need to know that, uh, that international criminal law, for example, is a very lively, uh, active field. Uh, we have these courts and tribunals in place. Uh, we have arrests occurring. We have prosecutions and trials taking place. Uh, we have a, a large number of non-governmental organizations, human rights organizations out there in the field uh, collecting various kinds of uh, evidence uh, and illustrations of the kinds of things that occur in these conflict zones. There are lots of opportunities to become involved in this work and the work is potentially very important in providing the advocacy for establishing and sustaining these courts and tribunals and also for collecting the evidence that will be used uh, in these courts and tribunals. So there are lots of opportunities uh, to become involved and to use my own interest in Darfur as just an illustration. You know, if we think about uh, how uh, the International Criminal Court has become involved in Darfur, more than any other group, uh, it was young people in colleges and universities across the United States uh, who became involved in this effort of attracting attention to the genocide in Darfur and provided the real sort of groundwork and uh, public attention and focus that uh, made it possible for the International Criminal Court to uh, to uh, receive this case, put the pressure on the United Nations Security Council, put the pressure on the United States government, uh, and provided the foundation for, for this case emerging in a, in a very real-world, kind of real-time uh, kind of way. This isn't just, you know, dusty history. These, uh, these are deaths and crimes that are occurring uh, as we speak. Well, Dr. Hagan, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Glad to do it. Thank you. You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio, 
For over 75 years, Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Mia Lobel. Thanks for listening.